Welcome to Saltier Politics. This week we are talking the environment. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. I mean, continuing our Game of Thrones um, mantra from last week. <laughs> the reason I, I, this wasn't the plan, but now that I come to think of it, and, and we are interviewing Jeff Tittle of the Sierra Club, who explains about the Green New Deal to us, um, reasons why people like it, reasons why people might have issues with it, generally um, about the environmental threat coming. And, and I mentioned in our interview with Jeff that speaking of Game of Thrones, winter is coming, um, and it's coming environmentally. And again, um, I feel bad, Emily, for your generation and the generations to follow, including my sons, because they really will be the ones having to deal with the effects of this in ways that baby boomers and even Generation Xers will not have to be dealing with. And I think hopefully this revolutionary idea of the Green New Deal can maybe spark change quicker. Or at least spark some legislation. I, I read that um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, having now failed to, to get the Green New Deal passed through the Senate, um, will put forward some legislation. My old boss, Congressman Frank Pallone, who's the chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which uh, is the committee charged, um, really charged, I know there's other committees that have been set up, but really charged with, with addressing the environment, um, will do something about it. Unfortunately, will be stymied in the Senate, as it always is, um, and certainly never signed into law by this president. And I, I don't know how many more hurricanes. It's, you know, you raised a great point, Emily. It's almost like gun control. At which point do we actually have a crisis that spurs some kind of change? Hurricane after hurricane, wildfire after wildfire. I mean, it's more and more and more of it. People's houses are getting destroyed. Their lives are ending. And that's the thing. It hurts the economy, too, at mm -hmm. that point. It's, it's not looking long-term and not short-term if, if you lose your house in a fire or it it's flooded by a hurricane there's your economy right there you're you're, you're homeless yeah and unfortunately um to my chagrin uh, much like much like gun safety nobody's taking it seriously everybody looks at it as a one-off and not realizing that there's a large i shouldn't say no one i mean i think a lot of people do especially younger people but our leaders continue to bicker like the targaryens and the starks and the lannisters while the night king is approaching Anyway, coming up, Jeff Tuttle of the Sierra Club. Welcome, Jeff Tittle of the Sierra Club. Jeff, there's been a lot of uh, disagreement among people about the, the Green New Deal, about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's introduction of it. And can you explain exactly what the Green New Deal is, what it entails, sure. what the reality of it is? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I'll start with a little of reality. First of all, it's a resolution, so it's not a law. So even if it gets passed, it just is aspirational. It's a framework to move forward, you know, with legislation afterwards, which means there's a lot of work that would still need to be done. So the main point of the Green New Deal is the resolution that wanted to get a sense from Congress on the climate emergency that is happening not only to the United States, but around the world. And what does that mean practically for people? What we're seeing already happening in New Jersey, where the water is getting so warm that we're losing our coastal fish, sea bass and striped bass, you know, striped bass and others are moving further north, being replaced by conch and warmer species, so it's changing our whole fishery industry and actually impacting them. It, it also means that the water is getting warmer, so you can see more jellyfish in our bays and in our oceans because of the warmer water with nutrients. Um, it's going to mean uh, more chances of what are called dead zones, where algae blooms come up because the water is so warm and killing aquatic life and actually closing the beaches, things like red tide and fisteria and all these other things are going to become more prominent. 
Um, and so that's, you know, one of the problems as the ocean warms. We're, we're in the mid-Atlantic. We should be a moderate temperature ocean, and we've been hitting 82 degrees, 88 degrees even in our water off our coast. So so that's part of the, the you know, what the scientists, scientists are showing. And, you know, the International Panel on Climate um, said that if we don't start really reducing greenhouse gases, we may hit a tipping point in 2030. One of the arguments that we keep hearing on the right is that the – People like AOC think that the world is going to end in 12 years, which they don't think it's going to end in 12 years. Could you kind of expand on exactly what you just said? It's not. Yeah, I always thought the people who thought the world was going to end in 12 years are those people who believe in the rapture on you know that side. Um, no, what, what, what it basically means is that in 12 years, we're going to hit a tipping point where the amount of greenhouse gases and, and pollution have put us at a point where no matter what actions we take, we may not be able to stave off the worst impacts of climate change. I mean, the planet will always be here. You know, it's been here for four billion years or so, and it'll continue to be here. What will change is how the planet itself is shaped, uh, the size of the oceans, the size of, uh, of um, you know, glaciers and things like that. But, but more importantly, how habitable will it be for man? There are places across the country and around the world that are going underwater every time there's a full moon high tide. If you have a house on Long Beach Island, New Jersey, when there's a full moon high tide, you have to move your car at least two blocks now because the streets by the bay are all flooding. And not just a little bit, but a lot where you have to move a few blocks. Uh, so it's happening. What it, so what it really means is by 2030, if we don't take strong, start taking strong action now, we're going to hit the point of no return where the climate damage is going to be you know, going to happen worse at a quicker timeline, and we may not be able to revert backwards, where it could mean that millions of people get dislocated all in low-lying areas, not only in Bangladesh, but in Miami Beach, that it means that certain crops that we that we uh, depend on, we may not be able to grow. One of the studies have, have shown that in, in, in less than a generation, in 20 years, that the Gulf of Maine has gotten so much warmer that you won't get lobsters out of the Gulf of Maine. You'll have to go further north. And there's not as much habitat, so it means that there won't be as many lobsters and the price is going to really skyrocket. Or because of the, the extreme heat that's happening in northern California, that Napa Valley may turn into a desert and won't be able to grow Cabernet grapes and many other grapes. Just stop it. That, 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 now you have me. Well, All right. I, I could deal without the lobsters, but come on. Just stop yeah. it with the Napa stuff because that's that's but personally you tragic. Saying, you, can't, you know that like you know all those great wineries are going to have to move up to Oregon or or Washington State, and you know, um, and those are wetter climates, so it means that they're not going the grapes won't even be as good. But but that's the kind of stuff that people don't realize. New Jersey is the warmest place in the world that can still grow cranberries. So explain this to me because as a former um, congressional staffer, this is a little troubling to me. This is a sense of Congress resolution. It's not necessarily anything that's going to accomplish anything. And there are people, um, including Congressman Frank Pallone, who's now the chair of the House Committee on Energy and Environment, which has traditionally played uh, an outsized role in, in environmental policy, who I think are somewhat frustrated from news reports that I've read about the fact that you have... Um, a younger generation trying to necessarily, not necessarily pass legislation, but usurp a message. Um, and again, to me, somebody who did work on the Hill, and in full disclosure, I many years ago worked for Congressman Pallone, it's somewhat frustrating to say that you need to have people take votes on something that's not going to accomplish anything, rather than actually introducing legislation 
uh, and making people vote on something tangible that's going to be enacted into law, or at least can be when we have a different president and hopefully a different Senate. Explain what. Explain why. Explain why you might disagree with that, or maybe you don't. Well, I, I do and I don't. Um, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Frank Pallone. I've you know worked with him for you know so many years, and you know consider him you know a, a real environmental champion. But but I think the congressman's looking at it from the position of a congressman um, having a committee chairmanship versus looking at it what's happening on the streets and the world around him. Uh, that in some ways he's being insulated because of his chairmanship and because of his background. So, so Congressman Pallone, who's you know I, I think is a great guy on the environment and so many other things, is looking at what he can get done and pass through this Congress with this president. And I think that's part of his problem is that he doesn't understand that the Green New Deal is aspirational. It's not going to get passed into law until we get a new president, a new Congress, and a new Senate. We, everybody knows that. The point is that it's a rallying point for young people to start to debate on climate change and to get active around this debate and to bring it to people that there is a way you know, that we can move this country and this planet forward. There is a way we can take on climate change and not just throw up our hands saying we're going to hit the tipping point and do nothing and we're going to end up just getting impacted by more storms and sea level rise and forests in California and the Pinelands and other places like that. And and I think so that the disconnect is that the congressman's looking at what does a chairman do? How do we craft legislation? The people pushing the Green New Deal are saying, Yes, we may need to we need to do all that, but that's later. First, we got to educate the public that there is hope, that there is a rallying point, that there is a way of taking on this massive issue that some people think you know it's, we're already too late. And I think that's the difference. It's the aspiration versus the you know the bare knuckles of Capitol Hill. And you know, Jeff, I've known you for for probably 25 years, and you've been involved in this on the, on the front lines of the environment and environmental policy for longer than that. So, are you frustrated? about the fact that the Green New Deal included issues which, while liberals uh, support overwhelmingly, really had nothing to do with the environment. The, the right to unionize, for example, a federal jobs guarantee, um, trade and monopoly policies, universal housing and health care guarantees. Uh, none of those have anything to do specifically with the, with, with the topic at hand. Did that detract, in your opinion, from this, or did that complement it? I think it, it does a little bit of both. Um, unfortunately, I think it detracts from the argument on climate change for a lot of people. But I, I think we're also blowing it up into a little bit bigger proportion than we should. I mean, so let me deal with health care first. Um, as far as health care is concerned, climate change is causing more and more illnesses in this state and country and around the world. Um, in New Jersey alone, because we have longer and hotter summers, we have more bad air days, meaning more children are going to the hospital uh, from asthma attacks. We have a longer growing season, which also means more pollen and people with allergies, but it also means more deer ticks that are out there and Lyme disease is getting worse and, and actually mutating to be even into other, you know, and getting worse, as well as other ticks are coming in because of the warmer weather. Uh, we're seeing um, more exotic diseases showing up and surviving here. And so there are massive health costs already to climate change uh, that are happening from you know, black mold from flooding to, you know, to, to bad air days. And so there is a major health. And I think 
what I see the problem is when they talk about the healthcare part is that they're not talking about that there was a study at Stanford University if New Jersey would move to a carbon-free economy in, in, in by 2035, we would save $60 billion a year on health costs. That's in New Jersey. So if you think about it in those terms, you know, there is a connection between climate change and healthcare. And I also think that part of this with collective bargaining and, and, and the healthcare issue are part of saying to the people who work in the fossil fuel industry that if we move down to this green economy, there's going to be plenty of good jobs, well-paying jobs, union jobs. And again, I think, you know, again, going back to the issue on healthcare, cost saving in healthcare alone could actually pay for the Green New Deal. Why is it that the Democratic Party, which obviously um, touts their efforts on climate change, or at least says that they are committed to climate change um, policies, why haven't they introduced anything since 2009? I mean, the last big one was the American Clean Energy and Security Act, which passed the House and then went on to die in the Senate. Ironically enough, I believe over, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, a carbon tax, which is, a, was, which is an old Republican idea. The Heritage Foundation right. created it. Yeah. New Gingrich Actually, supported it. it. it it's actually very similar to Reggie, which was written by George Pataki. Right. Um, and goes back to the George W. Bush concept of sulfur dioxide trading. So, yeah, I mean, and, you know, that was one of those failures where the Democrats had the votes in the Senate and the president, who I think is one of the most charismatic and probably one of the best presidents of my life. You're talking about Barack Obama in 2009. Barack Obama right? did not sit down and push it through the Senate when he could. It was actually being blocked mostly by Max Baucus. And then he tried to... Just for a Democratic a Democratic senator. Senator. Right. And then it was being blocked by Lindsey Graham. And he said, well, Lindsey Graham will open up drilling off the coast if you back it, which then all of a sudden people like Frank Lautenberg were going, no, we won't, no, we won't, right. you know, because it undermined you know people like Lautenberg and Menendez who don't want to see drilling off the coast of the Atlantic. And so it became, unfortunately... Um, uh, sort of a, a circular firing squad that President Obama was talking about just the other day in Europe. And that's why it didn't move. What are some examples that you give like, during your tenure at the Sierra Club when you've seen people enact changes to help the climate? What are some basic things that you've seen done firsthand that, you know, small steps can make a difference? Well, I think uh, one of the things we're seeing in this country is the fact that renewable energy in many places is becoming cheaper than fossil fuels. Um, you know, wind in Kansas, and that's why even in the state that's the home of the Koch brothers, they are building windmills um, throughout the state because there's money to be made by farmers, but it's also providing cheap power. Uh, you know, right now in this country, there are five times more jobs in the renewable energy sector than there are in the fossil fuel sector. Energy efficiency, wind, solar, um, biomass, many other, you know, areas as well. And so, so one of the things we're seeing is this, you know, this sort of step-by-step -step change where, on where we're getting our electricity from. We're also seeing more people buying more cleaner and less polluting cars. And that electric vehicles, I think, are, are one of the things that's going to be taking off soon because, if you have an electric car, it's going to cost you 75% less to operate per mile than an internal combustion engine car. It also means that there's so many repairs that you have on your normal car that you will not have on an electric vehicle that, uh, you know, you're never going to have to buy another muffler or a PVC valve or get a tune-up, I mean, you know, or, an, you know, so 
I, I think we're moving in that direction step by step because of the tax credit on electric vehicles, because of the tax credit on offshore wind. Um, we've seen a reduction in, you know, many uh, greenhouse gases because of going after dirtier sources of fuel like coal because of the mercury rule that Obama put in place. Uh, but we see the market heading in that direction, too. We see a lot of companies realizing they don't have to keep spending money every day buying electricity from a utility. They can put in their own solar panels. And after they get the cost you know, to put it in, you know, the, the upkeep is so cheap that they're actually, after a few years, not only pays for themselves, they're getting free electricity. So I, I, I see a lot of things happening, um, you know, piece by piece all over the place. I think the concern we all have is that you know, the clock is ticking and we need to do a lot more that, you know, we're at a stage where there's a sense of urgency. So incrementalism isn't going to be enough. What What is interesting to me is um, I remember being at Fox during the Obama years, during the Solyndra, quote unquote, scandal, which really wasn't much of a scandal, um, but was made into one by Republicans. And what was interesting to me is how often people don't understand that that oil and fossil fuel industries get a tremendous amount of government subsidies. Um, that we consistently pick and choose energy winners and losers um, in the government. And uh, the fact that there is investment to be made in jobs and renewables is something that I think is not talked about enough. Is there some sort of government incentive program um, that can continue right now, or does Solyndra just poison the well so much that even Democrats... There are, uh, I mean, especially the tax credits. Um, There's also research being done. One of the things that um, Trump went after last year was a cut dramatically the um, money's being spent by the Department of Energy for doing research on renewable energy. And actually, much of that money got restored by the Republican Congress. Uh, because there are a lot of Republicans in this country who are making money off of renewable energy. And there are a lot of Republican businesses that are saving money because they've gone renewable. Uh, you know, Chris Christie's own brother was in the, it was in the solar business. So um, there is money to be made. There's some, you know, and, and I think that's the part that they kind of miss and why there's a, there's a pushback. But, um, you know, right now, um, I, I think research and development is critical, especially on battery and storage technology so that renewables become much more efficient, you know, when the wind isn't blowing or when the sun is not out. But by the way, windmills do not cause cancer. (laughs) Breaking news. Yeah, the coal plants that the president's supporting causes cancer. Um, but I think that technology is coming and getting more. So, for instance, just I'll use I'll just use um, photovoltaic you know, solar panels. That in the last five years, their prices have dropped twenty percent, and their their efficiency went up twenty percent. Offshore wind, it's even bigger breakthroughs. That you know, at one time, if you wanted to put um, enough wind power off the coast of New Jersey to let's say. You know, well, the governor of New Jersey has a goal of 3,500 megawatts. At one time, you'd have to put out, um, you know, about 700 windmills. Now you can probably do it with 200 windmills uh, because the windmills are getting, you know, can generate more electricity and are more efficient. You know, go back to coal for a second because it it, it is heartbreaking to me. It always has been um, that there are people in, in coal states, whether it's Kentucky or, or West Virginia, who seem to believe that Barack Obama declared some war on coal, and if only he hadn't been around or the Democrats hadn't been around, uh, coal would still be king, and we'd all be, they'd all be employed, we'd be living under coal-powered, or a coal-powered regime. The reality is it, it became not sustainable from, a, from an economic perspective. Isn't that right? 
Well, not only that, but the coal industry itself went through major changes. And years ago, I did work for the United Mine Workers. Uh, went through major changes when they went from you know hard rock and tunnel mining to open pit, where you know or also called mountaintop mining, where the number of workers in the coal industry were were, were tiny. That you know, in order at one point to bring out a certain amount of coal, you needed a hundred workers. To take off the top of a mountain, you need about four. And so the industry was, was actually, through automation, was actually dying because uh, we're producing this, almost the same amount of coal for years with 80% fewer workers and at some point almost 90% fewer workers. So that's the first piece. So there was, there's been serious um, unemployment problems in coal country for a long time because of you know, open pit or mountaintop mining, which causes a tremendous amount of environmental damage. The other thing is that these coal plants were closing not because of the so-called war on clothes, excuse me, not because of the so-called war on coal, but the sheer economics that these coal plants cost so much to operate because, one, they're old technology and they're not efficient, that to the average coal plant, just to get them up and running can take three to seven days just to get all the boilers and up and running. You need to have pulverizers for the running for the coal to turn it into powder to burn it. You have to have all this pollution control technology, and you, which needs a lot of operators and costs a lot of money to operate, even on the older plants that only have a little bit. Um, so not that I'm a supporter of gas, because I think gas is becoming the new, you know, the oxycontin of energy, where it's addicting and very dangerous. Um, but, a, but a natural gas plant can operate with 20 workers, and a coal plant needs 200 workers. So the inefficiency of coal itself, of these plants, were driving them out of business uh, more than anything that you know, President Obama did. And I think that's why one of the broad goals of the Green New Deal is create millions of jobs and don't leave anybody behind right. in training new people. Uh, so one of the things that happens oftentimes after shootings is then you talk about gun control. And now we're seeing many times after horrific disasters like the wildfires or hurricanes, we see people start to talk about climate change. How do you debate the fact that a lot of people are like, stop politicizing a disaster when you bring up climate change, when in fact, I don't, I don't believe it's politicizing it. Well, first and foremost, you know, um, when Senator Inhofe walks in with a snowball into the Senate and says, hey, it's snow today, there's no such thing as climate change. You know, that's not only politicizing it, it's also illogical and dumb. When... I, by the way, I can't. I cannot begin to tell you how many times and I, I'm, I'm. I'm resisting the urge to curse right now. I had to deal with that when I was a fox. Whenever there oh, was, sure. whenever there was a snow day or a blizzard in New York City, somebody on air with me would say, "Well, I mean, I don't know. What you're talking about climate change. It's freezing here today, as though New York City was the epicenter of the world, right. and it well, wasn't hot 80, elsewhere." Today it's 82 in Trenton, so I guess. Global warming must be correct because it should only be like 65 today. Thank God it's correct because I'm yeah. having a great day outside today. But keep yeah, going. Yeah, just meant it's just this, you know the you know just like the scientists and climate say that one storm does not prove climate change. The problem is that we're having such a frequency of storms and the severity of storms is getting worse. You know when you have three you know category you know three or greater storms happen in one month in the Caribbean you know, impacting Texas and Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands and then the Gulf of Mexico, you know, you know, it's like, you know, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. There's gambling going on here, you know, Rick. Um, 
it's sort of like, yeah, it starts to add up when you see these wildfires. I mean, the billions and billions of dollars that were destroyed and the lives that were put at risk. Because people don't realize that what makes the wildfire so much worse is as we're warming the planet, the soils are driving, drying out. I mean, everybody talks about, you know, climate change and, you know, sort of weather. But what's happening with the warmer weather, the soil's drying out, making them more susceptible because wet soils are sort of the guard against um, basically wildfires because dry soils means dead brush, could kindling to start a fire. It means there's less moisture in the soil to try to stop the fire, to have a fire control itself more, and it causes the spread. So uh, just to wrap up, as, as, as we know, um, there's limited time to act sure. um, within a decade, of, if, if not a little bit more, before we get to an irretrievable point where we can't act anymore. What's the single most effective thing just that, that, that our government can do to stymie this right now? Is it a carbon tax? What, what is it that can do this most effectively? I, I think it's to regulate carbon. I think it's two pieces to it. Regu- because I think a tax by itself doesn't do anything. It becomes an add-on to consumers. I think we have to regulate carbon and CO2 and greenhouse gases just like we re- regulate any other pollutant, whether it's, you know, sewage coming out of a pipe or sulfur dioxide coming out of a, a power plant. We need to regulate it. We need to set limits and we need to start reducing it. And then you can use a carbon tax or some other mechanism to help pay for the transition over to a cleaner economy. Um, I think that's the first, when you're in a hole, you have to stop digging. And so I think that's the first piece we have to do. And I just want to also mention that, you know, one of the biggest places in this country that are pushing on climate has been the military because they see their bases going underwater. They see potential for wars that are going to happen because of climate change, because of droughts and floods or the loss of land because of them going underwater. So there's a real sense of urgency, not just from an environmental standpoint, but also from, you know, from our own military. And that's regardless of political party or the commander in chief in the White House, right? I mean, this is something, and wasn't that also said um, by the CIA that they thought that global warming or, or um, climate change was, was among the top most threatening oh, yeah. things facing, I mean, facing the world? Dan Coates is now no environmentalist said that it's, a, it's one of the top threats to uh, security on the planet. Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, um, former, former, Republican. former Republican senator from Indiana, yeah. Um, I think this is important, and especially when I'm talking to my friends, millennials, about why, why this is so important, because so many of my friends are afraid if they have kids, that they're going to have kids and bring them up in a world that they're not going to be able to live a full life. This is, by the way, yet another example of the baby boomer generation completely screwing millennials. Emily and I had that discussion last week. And as a, as a generation Xer, I was, I was blaming everything on, on the, my predecessors, the baby boomers, and I will, I will add this on to, to that. Well, I think one of the positives I see is the young people that have been out there protesting and getting behind the Green New Deal uh, you know, the hundreds and you know, thousands of kids in New Jersey and millions more around the world who walk out of school to protest climate change. And those young people that are pushing the Green New Deal, it's, you know, one of the reasons that, I, you know, I'm glad to be, Sierra Club does support the Green New Deal, but to be part of it is to see this new energy coming out of these kids instead of saying, oh, the, you know, it's too late, we can't do anything, I'm just going to sit home on my Xbox or, you know, or watch, you know, some, you know, movies or whatever, they're out there organizing and, you know, and I, what's, a what's the crazy, cause you've been around a long time. You worked for a lot of politicians before you got into the Sierra club. What's the single craziest political story you have in a nutshell? The single craziest 
We've all got one. We've all got like a crazy political story where you're like, I can't believe this is actually happening to me. And you've been around a lot of politicians over the years. What's the craziest political experience that you had? Um, Having a moose sit in my car in Maine. That's not a political story. That's a moose. That's that's a moose in a car story. (laughs) And and I I, I did a political campaign in Maine and I I have that story too. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I was working for a senator in Maine. Right. Um, You know, I have to really think about it. I think to me it it was, um, you know, I'll, I'll do an environmental one that when I got started fighting the safe Sterling Forest up in New York State on the New Jersey border, you know, no one um, would support it. I mean, it was like, well, what are you wasting your time? You know, then we got a few people and a few people. And then, you know, we ended up getting um, big support from a lot of people. All the politicians showed up. And then, of course, they tried to cut a deal, New Gingrich, to save a, th- a third of the forest, two-thirds of the forest, and develop one-third of half the development. It's a city of 35,000 people. And it's not really a crazy story, but it's one of my favorite stories is that Senator Bradley on the was on appropriations. Bill, Bill Bradley. Every right. expenditure in the country on open space until that bill got passed. Good for him. I never knew that. Wow, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't realize Bill Bradley was great on the environment like that. Yeah, and so to me, the fact that everybody thought he was crazy to hold up every bill from everywhere in order to get the seventeen. It was thirty-five million dollars to buy a Sterling Forest. Everybody thought he was crazy to do it. So to me, that was the crazy story that worked out well because now it's a twenty-two thousand acre park. That's a great story. Excellent. Jeff Tittle of the Sierra Club, thank you so, so much for joining us. And I, I really hope this clarified a lot of misconceptions for people about what the Green New Deal is, what we're facing from an environmental perspective, uh, eminently, if we don't all stop with the politicking and realize this is like Game of Thrones. To me. Yeah, I mean, to me, Game of Thrones um, is a big apocryphal story about the environment where the White Walkers are this impending environmental crisis that's about to drown the entire world. Um, while people bicker among themselves politically. And I've always thought that's what the author of the books was trying to get at, but that's just my interpretation. Thank you so much for joining us. That was a great interview about the Green New Deal and about climate change. It cleared up a lot of misconceptions. I think it did too. And it's nice to have somebody like Jeff talk about it because there's so many pundits um, all over the country that talk about this, but don't really don't really get it and don't really do research on it. And I, I said, and I was frustrated that so many times when I was a fox, some somebody would say, "Well, you know, it's snowing today, so what? Here's your global warming." And I would just think, "Oh my God, really? It's it's not all about where you happen to be at any one given point. Um, we have extreme weather events, whether it's bigger storms like snowstorms or or, or, or bigger parched um, summer days that it start earlier and end later." Uh, what's making you salty this week? Trump's transgender military ban. Pretty much, he's allowing people to personally consider themselves transgender. However, he's discharging those who appear or act transgender, and he's prohibiting those who have transitioned from joining the military. This has life-changing implications on people, and it absolutely makes my stomach churn, makes me disgusted about a bigoted policy that we as America so explain this to me. You can personally consider yourself transgender. But if you believe you're, or but you're, if you're, you're a man in a woman's body, then you still have to still act like you are a woman. So if I think I am a ma- or I was born a man in a woman's body, I still have to be in this woman's body 
but I can tell people in the military, I, I believe I'm a man. I just have to act woman. So you have to basically share accommodations with women. You have to use a women's room. You have Even to, though I see myself as a man. You see yourself as a man. Just because that's what I'm biologically born with. You know, I wonder if Donald Trump has ever met anybody who's transgender because, or, or people who oppose this have ever met anybody who's transgender because it is, to me, such a cruel thing to deny people the right to be who they are. It's, it's, it's absolutely absurd. It is just this, uh, I, I, it's so bigoted and awful. And it reminds me of the misconceptions about people who were gay or lesbians when I was growing up 30 years ago, 20 years ago, and how times have changed on that. And really that has changed so much. And now people have just moved on from the, not that they're not bigoted towards the LGB um, community Anyway, but now they've just moved on to the T, to the transgender in terms of open hostility and open um, bias from the government. And I have to say, I mean, this reminds me so much of the gays in the military argument um, from people like Colin Powell, of all all people, who's considered this national hero. But when uh, I was in college, that was the big controversy about gays in the military, whether you allow gay people in the military or not. I, it's just, it's, it's, it's a level of cruelty that I thought was awful then. And it's just the same thing that's awful now. And for those of you who oppose it, starting with you, President Trump, history is not going to look kindly on you the same way it doesn't look kindly on people who 25 years ago opposed people who were gay in the military. It's just not. You're not going to be on the right side of history. And from a moral perspective, forget the history aspect of it, from a moral perspective, you are discriminating against people who were born a particular way. Um, and that is awful. That is the same as, as this, it's the same as discriminating against people based on race who happen to be born of a particular race. Um, so shame on you, Donald Trump. Shame on you, people who agree with him on this. Um, to me, this is not a policy difference. This, to me, is a moral issue, and you are immoral. And I really believe that if you are denying people who are transgender equal rights, which they are entitled to, I believe, under the law, and one day the law will catch up to Donald Trump and to these discriminatory policies. I agree with you. Um, you know what's making me salty, and it hasn't even happened yet? The Israeli election. <laughs> oh, gosh. Because Bibi Netanyahu has just embraced the absolute war. I mean, this is a man who's embraced this racist party that's basically all about Jewish supremacy um, and how, uh, how a people, and I say this as somebody who's Jewish, whose entire existence has been about being the other, whose been, entire existence has been about um, being discriminated against because of who they are, regardless of how religious they are, um, because they were considered ethnically different, not just religiously different, um, throughout the last 2,000 years. How you go from, from being a member of uh, that religion, from being Jewish, to suddenly discriminate against somebody else based on that and somehow I've never heard of a Jewish supremacist until I read about this article with Netanyahu and unfortunately I hate to say this I think he might have the numbers to win not because he's not neck and neck with with his opponent but because these little smaller parties and their parliamentary system will be able to decide the outcome of the election and I you know he's embraced their horrible views so much that they will be able to swing it into a coalition government that I think will put him back in power and let's not forget he's actually under indictment. Uh, what he's done effectively, very effectively, I think, is this country used to be very pro-Israel um, in a bipartisan way. And what he and Donald Trump have done to team up this whole Jexit thing, whatever it's called, <clears throat> which, by the way, those of us who are Jewish refer to it as not Jexitus. We refer to it as 
Exodus, as in the book of Exodus, as in <laughs> the people who pioneered the whole concept of Exodus, and now that Passover is coming up, uh, you know, with the whole Exodus from Egypt. So you don't need to come up with a with a special Jewish word for the Exodus. President Trump, it's not Jexodus, it's just Exodus. That's what Jews do. They exodus, exited, exodus from Egypt. Um, but uh, but uh, it's it's become it's 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 become something that's a partisan issue now, and what I can't stand is this whole notion that if you're anti Netanyahu, you must be anti Israel. Well, no, no more than if you were anti Obama, you were anti American, or if you're anti Trump, you're anti American. Um, you can oppose the leader and his policies and still embrace the country. And I think Netanyahu, in his quest to hold on to power, has done such an effectively awful job of of, of distancing a whole new generation of, of progressive um, people from himself and from being defenders of Israel, and I think that's awful. And if you go to Israel, um, you know, you will meet plenty of people who oppose Netanyahu, the same way we meet plenty of people in this country who oppose Obama and who, who oppose Trump. I mean, it is what it is, but... Um, so I'm salty about that. I'm salty about the lasting damage he has done to our relationship with um, the state of Israel, which is the only democracy in the Middle East and um, should not be a partisan issue, but but thanks to them has become a very partisan issue. Um, and, and don't tweet me, please, about how people who are anti-Netanyahu are anti-Semitic. I am a Semite and I do not like <laughs> Netanyahu, so stop it. Um, what else you got for this week? The weather is getting nicer. And you know what, Jeff, he, he left on a really positive note that people are becoming more aware and are becoming more engaged about what's happening around them in climate change. And, and I really think educating themselves. They are. Um, also, I wish people could see you. You're wearing an awesome Khaleesi um, tank top that says they can live in my world or die in their own, which I think is a Daenerys Targaryen quote from some season. Um, which I can't remember, but uh, yeah, you're like in your running clothes. You're ready to go out. I'm ready. To, I'm going boxing. I'm ready to. I'm ready to get some. Get some of the day out. Wow, awesome! I didn't yeah. know you did that. Wow. Okay. Don't get into a fight with Emily. <laughs> note. Note to self. Um, all right, everybody. We will see you next week. Take care. Awesome. Bye.